So in Titus, uh, what we have is the Apostle Paul writing to his protege, Titus. And like I've explained to you uh, a couple times in the past as we've walked into this uh, text, that after Paul got released from prison in Rome, that's when he wrote this. And so the the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus, that's called the pastoral epistles. This takes this is written in between First and Second Timothy, and uh, Titus is is a missionary. He's a church planter, um, and hopefully, as you've read, I think uh, a few weeks ago, Pastor Matt said, you know, because he's so um, OCD about things that I noticed in his message. He said that it takes seven minutes to read the book of Titus. And I thought, of course, he timed it, you know, because if he said it, it's literally seven minutes. So but in that seven minutes, there's so much. And if you read the pastoral epistles, if you read first and second Timothy and you read the book of Titus, you you immediately see the vast difference between uh, the two personalities of these men that the Apostle Paul's mentoring. And what's a blessing to my heart is just to be able to see that the Apostle Paul, because oftentimes I find myself uh, discipling uh, vastly different people, vastly different men, and, um, and just realizing that the gospel cuts across all lines that would normally um, separate us, would normally diversify us, but brings unity and it's just a blessing and encouragement to see how all of this takes place. Now, we're, we're talking about a place, Crete, that's in the Mediterranean Sea. It's, a, it's an amazing, beautiful island that you can look on a map today. And if you were ever so blessed as to be able to go there and visit, you'd be able to see uh, some of God's spectacular creation in this wonderful, beautiful, tropical environment. But... Though it may be a beautiful place to see with your eyes, it was a very dark and difficult spiritual place. And if you remember back, if you weren't here for part two of this series, when Pastor Matt preached through the qualifications of an elder, you should go back and listen to part two because this part and that part fit together. And uh, as he walked through that, there were many points that he made that were uh, very uh, informative and relevant to the conversation we're going to have tonight. Now, if you look at your handouts, you'll see that in verse 5, the Bible says, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking. Now, I want you to think about that for a second. When you read that, you it should strike you as that's a very strange statement. You would never say, that uh, you need to set in order the things that are lacking because if they're lacking, what am I going to set in order? You see, normally you finish the things that are lacking and you order the things that are disordered. See, if things are in disorder, then you would order them. Or if things are lacking, then you would finish them or you would implement them or you would supply them. But the Apostle Paul says to set in order the things that are lacking. And that is a very interesting statement to me. And I wonder why he says that. Why does Paul say 
to put in order the things that are lacking, and that's because both finishing and ordering are needed in Crete. You see, what we know about the situation is that Paul has gone there, and Paul has preached the gospel there, and there has been converts there, and Paul has established churches there. And so all of these things have happened, but before Paul could finish the process, God called him to leave, and so he had to leave. And so the, the, the process wasn't completed, and that's what he's referring to. So how do you, how will this be accomplished? How will both finishing and ordering be accomplished? It will be accomplished by appointing godly leaders. The void that is in Crete amongst the, these young believers in these new churches is godly leadership. Because before Paul could do it, so everywhere Paul went, every church that Paul ever established, whether at Ephesus or Colossae or in Corinth or any church that Paul, of the, all through the New Testament, the greatest church planner who ever lived, he always established elders in every church that he established. And so whenever there's a lack of godly leaders among God's people, the enemy sees great opportunity. And that's exactly what has happened prior to the writing of this letter. Now, this is what I want to do. I want you to go back. We're going to, I put all these verses in here so you can be reminded. We're going to go back and look at what the text that we looked at in part two that Pastor Matt preached, beginning in verse 5. He said, for this reason, see, this is the reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. If a man is blameless, a husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination, for a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast to the faithful word as he had been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. So there are the qualifications that the Bible calls for a man to possess in order to serve or function in the capacity of elder. It's not the only list, but it is one of the lists. But the point here in the context here is that uh, in the past, I've used that text in an ordination service for somebody called to be an elder or a pastor. And that would be a very uh, common text to use. But I chose the next part. Because here's, here's what I want you to see about 5 through 9 and then the part that we're going to look at in a minute. Like if you look at 10 through 16, it starts with the word for. For. So all of these qualifications are what Titus is to look for. And then the, the big reason is, well, why? Because imagine... Titus, reading this, thinking to himself, really? Where am I going to find these people? I mean, I feel like this a lot of times when it comes to uh, elders. And, and yet, imagine in Crete how difficult it would have been to 
find a person who met these qualifications. But look, the first word of verse 10 is telling us that the reason for that is the reality of this. In other words, it's almost like there's a break in between verse 9 and verse 10 to say the reason that these qualifications are what you need to find and you need to search for and you need to focus on is because of this reality. And he says, for or because there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables or commandments of men who turn from the truth. But the pure, to the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But even their mind and conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. So what I want you to understand is the reason why, when you read Scripture, the reason why when it comes to church leadership, there's such an extensive list of qualifications that oftentimes seems a bit overwhelming. The reason why that is, is because of the reality that is described in verses 10 and following, which is the same reality that exists today. And so it has to be that way. God never calls us to do anything for nothing. Whatever he calls us and commands us to do, he does that out of his graciousness and his goodness because it's what we need, because it's, it will it will help us it will guide us it will direct us it will protect us and so if you just look at uh, for example verses 10 and 11 we're just going to look at those we'll take a little quick inventory of the first two verses the first thing we see is there are many the enemies are many we're not talking about a few we're talking about many the church is always under attack. The leadership is always under attack. It's not, it's not some, uh, it's not some uh, rare occurrence. It's not something that, that you know, that maybe there's a, a, a bad couple of weeks or a difficult month out of the year. That's not how that works. Listen, if you are standing for the gospel and you are fighting for what's right and true in a world that everything is set in opposition to, it will be warfare every single day, no matter what, 365 days a year, which I implore you, you should always be praying for your leaders because there's never a time that we're not under attack, never. We're under attack from the outside. We're under attack from the inside because there are many enemies, many insubordinate, many rebellious, he says. The outward attack of liberalism. The world is always trying to reach its tentacles inside the church, and it's a constant battle. It's a constant battle 
to uh, not only to respond to all the trials and the issues of worldliness that, that are damaging and causing problems in people's lives in the church that we have to deal with, but then on top of that, to be proactive and to try to keep that from even occurring in the first place is a never-ending battle. It's a never-ending battle. There's never, there's, there's never been a moment, there's never been a moment where I ever felt like I prayed sufficiently. It, never. If I, if I stayed on my face from sunup to sundown, it would still seem insufficient because of the reality of the barragement that is always coming against the body of Christ. And just the burden of being a leader within God's church. Whether you, whether you are uh, called by God to serve as a deacon or as an elder, or whether you function in a position where you teach people, where you know that you're going to have a higher accountability, it's, there's a never-ending, never-ending onslaught of liberalism from trying to weave its way from the outside in. But then there's the inward attack of legalism. You notice, because he says of the liberalism, he says they're idle talkers and deceivers. And then of the legalism, those especially, those of the circumcision. Those are the legalists. Those are the Judaizers that are mentioned all throughout. the Basically, the whole book of Galatians is about uh, these Judaizers that are perverting and twisting the gospel into some uh, different form. They're trying to teach a works-based salvation. They're saying, well, we believe in salvation by faith, but you also have to do these other things. That's not salvation by faith alone. It's not through grace. That's, that's a works-based foundation that you're trying to... It's a false doctrine that will never lead to true sanctification. So the inward attack. And then the danger... It's just devastation. Because notice he says in verse 11, their mouths must be stopped. Must be stopped. Who subvert, what? Whole households. Teaching things that they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. That word subvert whole households, it means to overthrow or to destroy. It destroys whole households. What destroys whole households? The outward attack of liberalism destroys households all the time, disintegrates marriages all the time, takes it, uh, destroys children uh, all the time. And then the inward attack of legalism. And oftentimes, it's not just one, it's not this attack going on here and that attack going on here, but they work in conjunction. Because here's, here's the, the perfect storm, is when you have, you, you have somebody in the family of God who is, uh, who is being uh, led astray by legalism, and then the, what happens to parents that are wrapped up in legalism is that, is that they set their children up. You actually make your, your children or your spouse, the people that you're, you are, are set to care for, you make them much at a much greater susceptibility to the outside attack of liberalism because they're trying to get away from the hypocrisy of legalism. And the devil's having a field day between the two of them. 
or the person who was uh, who grew up in some uh, broken scenario where they were poorly affected, negatively affected by liberalism, then overreacts in the other way and then gets all wrapped up into legalism. Again, the cooperation of Satan's tools in order to dismantle families. This is why families have to be on the same page theologically. You have to be on the same page. You have to, you have to, uh, to have conversations about things. You have to this is why you, you talk about the things of God as you lie down and as you wake up and as you walk down the way and as you drive down the street and as you do life together. You're constantly bringing what God is doing and saying and teaching into those moments because if you don't, you're setting yourself up for dangerous consequences, devastation. So... The, the dictionary defines legalism as a strict or excessive conformity to a law or moral code for the purpose of self-exaltation, which is exactly what Paul says. They're doing it for the sake of dishonest gain. Same thing. Why does, why does the legalist, why are they drawn into legalism? What is it about legalism that, that entices people? Because if you think about it, it seems counterintuitive. Like who out there, you know, wh- when was the last time you went to work and you went into your boss's office and said, hey, could I have a few minutes of your time? Um, listen, I've been thinking, I just feel like there's not enough rules here. I think you really need to clamp down harder. You know what I mean? Like really put some restrictions on us. That's what we really need. Well, then what's the big draw? Because it seems like no one would want that, but yet it's not that way. See, the draw is self-exaltation. See, what the legalist does, the legalist loves all all the external rules and regulations that they're good at. They they like to set themselves up as the example of godliness. They, they, They feel good about themselves because of all the things that they can do or the boxes that they can check. And so therefore... They can use that to shield themselves from the more uh, uncomfortable sections of Scripture and the more uncomfortable work of the Holy Spirit inside of them. If the Holy Spirit's even inside of them. And so this, these, uh, this group that was those of the circumcision, they, they were just people who, who were endorsing salvation. But the saved... Also, in order to be saved, you'd have to, you'd have to connect to and obey all of the, uh, the Jewish laws and regulations, the customs of the Jews, if you will. And so here's Titus having to deal with all these problems. You see, that's what makes Christianity so different from all other religions, from all other uh, faiths is that Christianity is not based on a set of rules. It's based on the worship of a person, which is a very different thing. That's why 
I, I put Romans 8, 1 and 2 there for you because we all know, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But why? Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit and the, as of life set me free from the law of sin and death. You see, what the legalists are trying to do is to, is to pull you back into the law of sin and death. You know why? Because that's something that they feel like they can manage, something that they feel like they can, uh, they can, they can uphold, which they can't, but they feel like they can. They can outwardly look successful in it, and they can try to condemn other people through it. Nothing's more condemning than being around a legalist and them looking down on you because you're not living up to their expectation. And you know what the tendency for you to do is? Especially if it's somebody close to you, especially if it's somebody that you, you, you love or that you care about. The, the temptation for you is just out of, maybe out of guilt or maybe out of some uh, perverted form of, of, of honor, which it's not real honor, but somehow you feel, if I just oblige them, then it will at least, you know, keep our relationship on the right path. And here's what I would say to you. If your relative was a Mormon, would you oblige them? If they were a Muslim, would you oblige them? What's the difference? It's false doctrine. And so oftentimes, here's what you'll hear around here. You'll hear people frustrated with the leadership for various reasons. One of those reasons is, is because, is because the leadership here will be very pointed and very direct to those who try to impose some legalistic ideas. And what inevitably happens is, is that the person to whom one of us has a conversation with, well, how do you think they're going to feel about it? Do you think they walk away and go, I am so grateful? That never happens. It's always the same broken record. Pastor Tony's insensitive. You know, here's what he told me. Now, I want you to look back at the text. What does the Bible say? Their mouths must be shut. Now, I have a question for you. Am I insensitive or obedient? What does it say? Their mouths must be shut. It's false doctrine. So if you come in here with your legalistic ideas, it's going to be the same thing as if you come in here trying to promote the Koran. It's the same thing. No difference. And so I'm cautioning you because many of you grew up in families and you have to try to navigate these relationships. But I'm telling you, you need to be careful. You need to be careful. You need to be careful about how, how that uh, in other words, for the sake of uh, peace, for the sake of peace, are you going to, would you, let's suppose a, a Mormon or a, a, a Muslim family moved in next to you. For the sake of peace with your neighbor, 
Would you allow them to indoctrinate your children with false teaching? Well, what do you think happens when you're around your family members and your kids are present and they're spewing their legalistic nonsense? How is it different? Think about it. How is it different? Now, I'm not saying that it's impossible to navigate. I'm simply saying you need to be thoughtful and careful, and maybe it is impossible to navigate. But I'm just telling you, I want to be gentle and kind and understanding and, and loving, but at the end of the day, I'm, I'm not going to answer to you. And the Bible says their mouths must be shut. And so my mouth won't be shut until your mouth is shut. And that's how it is. For the, and listen, it's not, it's not because I want it to be that way or the elders want it to be that way. It's because God commands it. It's what it says. So Christianity, on the other hand, is conformity to the Word of God for the purpose of Christ's exaltation. Whereas, see, legalism is, is to promote self, is for dishonest gain. Christianity, the reason we do the things we do, the reason we are the people that we are, that we strive to be the people that we ought to be, that we're so conscious of these things, it's for the exaltation of Christ because Christ is exalted. Listen, and oftentimes, oftentimes, in obedience to Scripture in, in this arena, Christ is exalted, but the, the deliverer of the mail is the one who's going to take it on the chin. So oftentimes, so oftentimes. I mean, it's so true for those who, who serve us as deacons so oftentimes. You have, to, you have to think about, you have to think carefully about what is really going on. The church is not the world. The church doesn't operate like the world. It's not like your job. It's not like what you're used to. It's not like your culture. It's different. It's different. And listen, if I, if I understand that, if I can live the first 25 years of my life never even walking into a church or holding a Bible, having no context whatsoever, if I can go from completely in the world to the understanding of a completely and utterly different uh, context in every way, shape, or form, then certainly you can make that leap. Absolutely, because the Spirit of God will help us. But he, you know what? Here's the problem. The problem is, is that so oftentimes this whole conversation we're having tonight is ignored. It's ignored. And it's overlooked. And it's marginalized. And it's and then here's the thing. Who pays? See, who pays 
Who pays for all the ridiculous things that go on in the church today? See, it's very easy for us to say, well, listen, we, we're only going to give account for ourselves. So if all these other churches want to do all these other whacked out things, that's their business. They're going to have to answer to God for what they do. And in a sense, that's true. But, but that's, that's issuing yourself some false comfort. Because understand something. You know who pays? The reputation of Christ pays. Here's who pays. All those people that we're visiting on Saturate Sundays, by the way, which will be June 5th, all those people we visit on Saturate Sundays, many of those people, the wounds that they bear came at the hands of people who profess to be the same as me and you. And so the reputation of Christ has suffered for that. And so you just think to yourself, I read an article the other day about a, a, a church that uh, they established a policy within their church that uh, no man was, is allowed in their church to have long hair. Well, in order to establish that policy, then you have to establish the policy of, well, what constitutes long hair? And so they wrote in the policy that if your hair touches your collar, that it's considered to be long hair. You know, and at this point, I should have stopped reading. But it's, it's, it's the car wreck you can't stop looking at or something. I just have to keep letting it pummel me in the face. And so I keep reading. And it says in the policy, and the reason I'm reading is because they're proud of it. They're proud. Dishonest gain, self-exaltation. They're proud of it. They want, it all, they want everybody to know about it. And here's what it says. It says, I quote, If any man's hair goes beyond his collar, he will not be welcomed within 10 feet of the communion table. My first thought was to the leaders of that church, dear sirs, that's not your table. You have no authority to be messing with that table. So oftentimes you run into people who take things too far. I know people who are caught up in this issue of Women wearing pants. Now, I don't need to get into the whole ridiculousness of it. I'll just simply say this. So, so, so you know what they do? Their daughters wear miniskirts that are ten times more modest than any pants you could ever wear. But yet it checks the box. And all I'm saying is that, listen, do you know what the world thinks when they see that? The same thing I think. I don't want any part of it. It's a disgrace. And and we're so capable of this in human history. Listen, in church history, for, for generations of people, 
whenever they went to church, the only thing that was allowed to be read in the church was the Latin Vulgate. So the Bible had to be read in Latin, even though the only people in the entire building that understood or could read Latin were the priests. And people sat in church for generations and didn't understand a word that was being spoken because of legalism. And then today we've just traded that in for instead of, instead of being wound up on the Latin Vulgate, we got all these people wound up on the translation. But none of them know the original languages. It's shocking. They got a lot of opinions, but they don't want to talk to me or anybody else who studied Greek and Hebrew about it because it's ignorance. It's ignorance. It's all it is is ignorance. All this got started up again. You know, this it's it comes in waves, you know. So it's always something, you know, it's you know a few years ago it was it's always something new. Lately there's been a lot of churches all stirred up about uh, men with facial hair because now, you know, guys like suddenly growing all these, you know, giant beards. I'm not envious. I just can't do it. Just saying. Uh, but anyway, so I had my most recent conversation about legalism was with regards to this facial hair issue. And so this person was telling me how you know he was at odds with his his grown man at odds with his parents because they didn't believe and they were all bent out of shape about his facial hair and said it was rebellious and so on and so forth and uh, I said to him write this down he's like what I said you got a pen right so I got a card out of my truck and gave him a pen. I said, write down Leviticus 21, verse 5. It says in Leviticus 21, they shall not make bald patches on their heads. Well, thank God, nobody wants to. And then the command is, shave off the edges of their beards. Well, now, if it's wrong to have beards, why does the law say don't shave the edges of it? And I said, write down Isaiah 50, verse 6. Because it's a prophecy about Christ. And it says of the coming Messiah, the Bible says, I gave back to those who struck me. He's talking about his crucifixion. And my cheek I gave to those who plucked out the beard. You see what I'm saying? Well, you know what that does? That discredits Christ. It makes, it makes Christ's reputation be drugged down. So be very careful. You know, sometimes it's convenient to want to impose something that makes your life easier or it's, it happens to be what you like, but it's not about you. It's not about me. It's about Christ. And you know what? We, we want to be a people that, that exalts Christ because this is what, this is what the, God put in the heart of every man, woman, and child is a desire to know and worship the real one and only true God. And so when people come in contact with me and you or come visit here for church, 
that's the thing we hope they, that, that they see, that whatever it was that happened to them in the past or whatever they were experiencing in the past, that it's not that here. The corruption of legalism, understand it comes in two forms. It's adding rules where God did not intend rules to be. But it's not just that. It's also motives behind what God does command. It perverts both. And oftentimes it's, it's the perversion of the motives behind what God did command that can be the most destructive and hard to spot. Because just as important as what God commands us to do is the why behind doing it. Because if you do the right thing for the wrong reason, you haven't done anything. And so you got to beware of legalism on all points. And so if the legalists, their behavior becomes the standard by which they gauge the spirituality of themselves and others. Well, of course. You see, they exalt themselves because they become the standard. The standard. And when it comes to the standard, the only standard for godliness is God. No one else. So Paul says, he talks about the Cretans, they're liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Their testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. So there is hope. But what does the Bible, what does the Bible say hope comes, comes through? Notice what it says. Therefore, rebuke them sharply. It's very clear. It's not just try to go and not upset anybody. Is that what it says? The restoration of the false teacher comes through sharp rebuke. That they, and, and there is a possibility that they may become sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables or commandments of men and turn from, who turn from the truth. Because to the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But even their mind and their conscience are defiled. Here's what I would say about verse 15, just quickly. I don't want to labor here, but I know there's a, there's a, there's a sermon in the future on the, on the principle behind verse 15 about to the pure, all things are pure. It grieves me when I hear people in the church who immediately gravitate to negativity because it contradicts what this text uh, teaches right here. You see, there's something to when you immediately think the worst of someone, it's telling me something about your heart, not anything about the person. It's telling me about your heart. We want to be a people who always think the best and hope for the best. And sometimes the best isn't true, but we want to start there. Let me just give you one little tip that you need to understand. When somebody comes to me and tells me something about you, I don't go, well, well, that's terrible. My first thought is, hmm, you might be a fruitcake. Because why are you telling me and not them? First of all, you violated that principle. And number two, I'm thinking, well, wait a minute. I know them. They're part of my family. And so if you say something negative about somebody in my family, my immediate response is, I don't think that's right. I don't think that's true. That's not the character I've witnessed. That's not the person that I know. Now, if I find out eventually that it is true, I'm disappointed. But I'm not going to start there. It tells me something about your heart. So listen, 
You need, to, you need to have conversation with your spouse and say, you know what, why do you jump to the negative? You need to have conversation with your kids. Why do you jump to the negative? It's a hard issue. It's a hard issue. It's a hard issue. And then verse 16, to profess to know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, disqualified for every good work. All right, so... Three dead giveaways of false teachers just for your edification so that you can be aware. It's always, number one, carnality. Always. 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 Whether it's legalism or liberalism, it's always carnality. It's always yielding to the desires of the flesh. That's why the Cretans were lazy gluttons, because they're giving in to the flesh. That's why legalism's running rampant. That's why liberalism's always attacking, because it's the desire of the flesh. Number two, it's going to lead to divisiveness. It's always one's better than the other. One's higher than the other. Beware. Beware of the negative talkers. Beware. They disrupt harmony. And then thirdly, it's fruitlessness, because obviously that's going to be the inevitable outcome in every situation that's not of God. There's always going to be an attempt to counterfeit the fruit, but it's never genuine. It's never authentic. There's not love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. No, that's not there. It's always counterfeit, false. And so... To successfully know what we believe, we must understand that knowing God is both theological and moral, and they cannot be separated. And this, is the, this, is, this was the inevitable outcome of the, the sermon on the qualifications for elders, and it's the inevitable outcome on the reason for the qualifications for elders from this text, is that you cannot separate the theological from the moral. In other words, it's not, it's not just knowledge of the truth without action to verify possession of the truth. It's both. It has to be both. You can't, if you say you believe something, but it's not evidence in the way you live, then your beliefs are not genuine because what you live is the determiner of what you believe. And so they can't be separated. So what you believe will determine how you live. It's always been that way. It'll always be that way. And so when it comes to the church, well, sure. You see, you came into a situation where somebody at some point, at some time, told you about the opportunity that you have to have a personal relationship with God. Isn't that a blessing? And you responded positively to that opportunity. But understand this. Your personal relationship with God is not in any way, shape, or form private. No one ever likes that except for Mark. He's the only one that likes that. It's not private. It's personal, but it's not private. Nobody in your family... I mean, I don't know about your family. I'm telling you about my family. We got a couple, you know, Ten Commandments of the Carnes family. One of the commandments is, ain't no privacy in my house. It's my house. 
So if you think you got something in your room that's, in matter of fact, in my house, if it's under my, this roof, it belongs to me. Even if you bought it, it's still mine. So if you don't think I won't rummage through your stuff, you got the wrong idea. And Lisa can rummage through anything I got because it's not private. I mean, what are we doing? People who are big on privacy got something to hide. No, it's not private. So what is an elder? Why this conversation? Why is it so important? Because we live in a broken world. And the, the church is in a battle. And I want you to think about something. God called elders. Elders are they're, they're male leaders in the church who, in the New Testament, the word elder is interchangeably used. It's, it's synonymous with the word pastor, bishop, overseer. Those are interchanged. So, so I'm an elder, but I function as a, a teaching pastor. And we have lay elders who function differently, but we're, we're, they're still elders. And that's how the Bible uses the term. Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 5. They're chosen men, just men. You don't like that? Okay. You don't think that's fair? Fine. It's got nothing to do with me. That's what the Bible says. It's just how it is. And they have to meet these clear biblical requirements after a sufficient season. It, you can't be new. You can't be unknown. You can't be untested. You, you certainly can't be unobserved. 1 Timothy 2. They serve directly under Jesus. That's what elders do. Because he is the head of the church. But like Christ, their, their leadership, if you, if you wonder how do elders function, the best way to understand the function of an elder is through the imagery of a shepherd because that's what elders do. All elders, regardless of whether they function as teaching pastors or lay elders, or the ministry of being an elder is the ministry of shepherding, and that's what they do. And oftentimes, uh, not only shepherding you as, as part of the flock, but the lay elders shepherd me. And that's all for, for God's purpose, see, because the, the key is, is that God hasn't called the church to call an elder. It's elders, plural. There is a plurality of leadership, and it's important for you to understand why there has to be that way. And certainly the state of the church today is perfect is perfect example of why. Just read the horrific news that was just released about the uh, study that, uh, uh, that's revealed all the transgressions that have gone on in the SBC. You know why all that happened? Because there wasn't a plurality of leadership in place. That's why that happened. More on that later. Why a plurality? Because it embodies, first of all, the express teaching of the New Testament. Romans chapter 12, 1 Corinthians 12. But also, plurality acknowledges human limitations by recognizing that no one man possesses all of the competencies necessary for the complexities of leading a church, much less a church of this size. And that's 1 Corinthians 12, 21. Plurality creates a leadership structure where men 
have to model the unity to which God calls the whole church to model. John chapter 17, Romans 15, Ephesians 4, Colossians 3. See, if there's, if there's not a plurality of leadership, then you have leaders that do one thing but call people to do another, which is not right. Plurality creates a community of care and support and accountability that guards the calling. And believe me, the calling needs guarding. It guards the life and the doctrine of the leaders in the church, 1 Timothy 4, James chapter 5, verse 16. Plurality provides a mechanism to deal wisely and collaboratively with all the complexities of the local church, 100%. So oftentimes, I'm so thankful for the gift of a multitude of counsel, which is the last point, is that plurality, it, it contradicts any idea that one single individual would always know and have the right information or make the right decisions. When no, what it affirms is the biblical call for wisdom, that there's an abundance of counselors, there's wisdom. That's what we need is wisdom. So we want to collaborate together and lead together and guide the church together because it's a, it's a, difficult, it's a difficult calling to say the least. 